Hi, I'm Lisa Morton, founder of Roland Dransfield PR. Welcome to We Built This City. With this podcast, I wanted to shine a light on the people who have put the heart into modern Manchester. You can build a city with bricks and mortar, but it's the people that make Manchester great. People like my guest, Tom Bloxham. And I think in Manchester, nobody cares where you're from. It's where you're going that counts. Mm -hmm. That's a really good attribute. Tom Bloxham, MBE, is founder and chair of award-winning regeneration company, Urban Splash. Probably one of the most well-known regeneration companies in the UK. As of today, Urban Splash has won over 400 awards. Tom is Chancellor of the University of Manchester, Chair of Manchester International Festival, and a trustee of Tate and the Manchester United Foundation. Tom's an adopted Mancunian, but he says he's definitely a bona fide Manc, and I don't think you'll find anyone who'd argue with that. He got the calling to Manchester University in 1983 as a politics student, and he started selling one posters to make some money on the side, but realised very quickly the importance of knowing your market, and he changed his product line to reflect the music that uni students were into at the time. The rest is history. In this episode, Tom shares with me the need to create space to make mistakes so we can learn from them what gets him out of bed in the morning and his big audacious goals for 2021 because even after almost three decades of urban splash he's still building this city. Tom thanks for joining me on We Built The City. You've been on a true entrepreneurial journey before you set up Urban Splash in 93 and we'll come on to that in a minute but what I really want to know first of all is what selling fire extinguishers taught you early on in your career? So uh, one of my first jobs, my second job actually, was selling fire extinguishers on the knocker, as you called it, which was just literally door-to-door calling, cold calling. Um, And I used to walk into an office with a briefcase, a can of petrol. I'd pour the petrol on the briefcase. I'd set fire to it. I'd put out the fire extinguisher and say, don't you want to buy one of these? And it was actually a really good education. I mean, it teaches you to sell, and we're all salespeople, whatever we do. But perhaps more important than that, it taught me a number of things. Uh, one is actually, when I got in front of the boss, I had a quite a good chance of selling, but the real skill was getting in front of the boss. And to do that, you had to be super charming to the receptionist, the security guard. You never quite knew who anybody was in the lift. And so just trying to be as polite as you can to everybody mm. all the time is no bad thing. So that's always a good lesson in life. Um, the second thing, I think, was resilience. And actually, I was pretty good at it. And I was, you know, the um, best salesman. But even so, I still got knocked back nine times out of 10, probably 99 times out of 100. And so we had a lot of people come to work and they got a few no's and they weren't particularly good at it and they just gave up. But you realise that in life, you'll always get a lot of knockbacks, but you just got to keep getting back up on the horse and keep going forward and forward and forward and keep Mm. trying. So true. My dad sold vacuum cleaners door to door with his brother and his brother got him the job. And my dad, I think the first time he went out, he was so frightened. He knocked on a door and like legged it and then hid behind the wall. But so they used to go in the, into the houses and put dirt all over the person's floor and then hoover it up. And um, and he said to me that every no you get, you're close to a yes. So I think Correct. that's, you know, it's a really good life lesson, isn't it? Correct. So what did you do after that? And what was the next thread? So after that, I came to Manchester to come to university to study politics and modern history at Manchester University, which I loved. 
And I thought I'd had sort of a bit of an entrepreneurial um, zeal in me, zest in me. And I'd sort of been going to jumble sales as a kid and buying, um, looking for... I was always the first one in the jumble sales, like car boot sales today. I was the first one in looking for the gold and silver jewellery. And I came back last and bought all the penguin and puffin books I had left over. And so made a bit of money doing that. And I'd always been sort of buying and selling stuff and wanted to do something. So with my first student grant check, and in those days we were lucky enough to get grant checks, I bought a load of records to sell. But I was absolutely crap at that. And I made the mistake of following very crude market research, which was the charts. And this was 1983. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Wham! was top of the singles, top of the albums. You know, the only correlation between the two charts. And, of course, no students want to buy that. So I was crap at doing that. And I slowly got, got to learn. But what I realised was all the students had bare breeze block walls. They all wanted posters. And most of the posters you could buy then were actually pretty naff. And they were uh, my glossy pictures of Michael Jackson or that tennis player showing her bum. And all <laughs> my mates that. were into <laughs> Bob Marley and Joy Division and The Clash and the you know, punk stuff. And they wanted really cool posters. But the record companies were actually giving away posters for nothing. The idea was you'd buy 100 records, you'd take one poster and stick the poster up in your wall. And I sort of went in there, bought five um, records, stole a few posters or borrowed a few posters and gradually got into posters. And I started dealing with the record companies with, you know, anywhere I could, I'd be buying posters, buying posters and selling posters. And eventually I built that up into quite a big business and I was in the right place at the right time and we got licensing deals with the Happy Mondays and the Stone Roses and James and most of the Manchester bands and we were shipping them all around the world, uh, wholesaling them to all the shops. But I realised that actually you could export a post of 50p, you could wholesale it for £1.15 but you needed sales reps and everything else but you could retail it for £3. Mm. So I said I needed to get a shop. And so I went around all the shops in Manchester, uh, knocking on the doors, uh, going to the estate agents. And none of them, they all gave me short shrift. So I got this great business, said, yeah, but where's your accounts, Tom? We want to see three years worth of accounts and we'll have a look at Covenant. Now, I thought Covenant was where nuns lived, but it was a convent, <laughs> apparently. Uh, I had none of those. But eventually I found a very small place in Affleck's Palace. So I started in there. But somebody else had got the franchise sell posters. I go and sell postcards. But even so, I made a success selling postcards. And then I kept hassling and hassling and hassling for more space. And next door, 6,000 square feet came up on the first and second floor, which became FLEX Arcade, actually, mm. and we developed that. From Chris Oglesby's uh, father, partner, actually, was what, what became Pumpwood as a firm that owned it. And then it was too big to sell posters, 6,000 square feet, so sublet the space. Ended up making more money from subletting the space than I did from selling the posters. And thought, hey, I must be into property. <laughs> and then started buying other buildings, um, in Liverpool called Liverpool Palace. And in the meantime, I'd sort of set up a chain of um, bars called Bar Bar, that some of you listeners may have been to, a nightclub called Home in Manchester, and various other things. But gradually, I got more and more focused on property, and I realised that there was a real need for initially creative industries. And what had happened at the time is Manchester was still being refurbished, and typically, as a building became empty, they would let it on short-term lets, to a load of creative industries. And I had a lot of friends who were designers into the music business and they wanted space, but they couldn't sign a 10-year lease or a 25-year lease. They just wanted to go in and get a space. And the only place they could do it was in buildings about to be knocked down. So they kept getting moved on and mm. moved on and moved on. So I thought, well, actually, this is a good market. And, you know, it's actually very, very similar to what WeWork is today or the Bonnier yeah. Warehouse where we're speaking from. And so we set up a building called Juicy House in Manchester. We bought it very cheaply. The building was going to be demolished because the people who owned it thought there was no use. They thought it was a Victorian building they'd never let. 
and it's going to be knocked down. And we bought it very cheaply, and we got um, Simpson Huff, um, Ian and Rachel, one of their mm-hmm. first schemes to come and refurbish it. And then we filled, I think, 808 State with the first tenants and Simply Red and Ask Property and UK Fask and ANS Software. And loads of great Manchester brands uh, came in out of that building. But a cafe downstairs and a nightclub and it became a real hub for many years of Manchester's creative industries. Mm, I remember it so well. And look how many of those businesses have gone on to such incredible being part of the, the Manchester DNA now. It's said that you're Manchester's equivalent of Ray Kinsella, who Kevin Costner played in Field of Dreams. So if we build it, they will come. In the early 1990s, when I came back to Manchester from uni, all the buildings were black. I mean, there was actually, you couldn't get anything to eat on a Sunday. The city was shut at nine o'clock at night. What did you think was going to make people want to come back into the city centre and live here? I mean, you're absolutely right, Lisa. The city was empty. Shutters literally came down at five o'clock at night. No one's around the city centre. And I suppose I've been lucky enough to do a bit of travelling in Europe and I've been to America and I'd seen so in New York. And there are these amazing buildings in Manchester city centre um, with high ceilings, big windows, great, you know, we knew they could make amazing loft apartments. And yet everyone was moving out. The Refuge, Assurance Company, had just moved out of their amazing mm. building into a you know, fairly average building in the suburbs. And we started thinking about it. And we realised, why did nobody live in the city centre? And as you go back 100 or 200 years, it was full of people living there, and the richest people lived in the city centre of Manchester. But as the factories came, and the smog, and the cheap workers, the rich people, if you like, the burghers of Manchester, moved. And they moved southwesterly by and large, because of evading winds. And so, first of all, to Victoria Park, then to Wally Range, then to Didsbury, then to Wilmslow, then to Audley Edge. And you just saw this exodus in the city centre. But actually, those factories are now closed down. There was no no smog, there were no more back-to-backs and actually Manchester was a great place to live, we thought. And so we started developing in Manchester and other regional cities and bringing some amazing architecture in and converting very cheaply. Remember the first building we did in Liverpool actually was Concert Square and it cost us £27 a square foot to convert it. We sold it for £60 a square foot. And so, you know, the apartments were amazing value. In Manchester, we did Sally's Yard, we did Smithfield buildings, we did Britannia Mills, you know, and the early adopters were brave, mm-hmm. but they really got the rewards because they've seen, you know, the value of their homes um, go up manyfold. I remember, I don't know what year it was, but we did the PR for the Grand Hotel and we actually had people camping out overnight on the streets to, to get an apartment the next day. It was just, there was just so few, but they were absolutely stunning buildings, weren't they? Yep, yep. And do you think now, obviously, we've got a situation where the city centre is still very empty, given the whole issue of the pandemic, but I was amazed to find that actually lettings and sales in the city centre are stronger than ever. And we've got, I think at um, Deansgate Square, there will be the equivalent of the population of Hale living in those towers. So there's no slowdown, is there, on people wanting to live in the city even if they don't want to work in it just at the moment? Yeah, I mean, the residential market has been very strong in the city centre and we found both for sales and for rentals it's been really strong. I think the big mega trend is urbanisation. Mm-hmm. That's been going on throughout the world for many hundreds of years and it's going to continue. And it stopped sort of in northern regional cities for a number of years because of the industrial revolution and the pollution. But now we're seeing more and more people come back to the city centres. The cities as we know them started with ancient Athens and they've survived ever since. They've survived the canals, the railways, the telephone, the fax, the internet, the internal combustion engine and they will survive COVID. 
And actually, people like to be in cities because we're fundamentally social breeds and we like to meet each other. We like to socialise. We like to bump into friends. We like to bump into ideas, to share ideas. Why are all the lawyers next to all the accountants in spinning fields? Because they meet each other in the coffee mm. shop and they <laughs> do a deal together or, you know, the surveyors meet Friday night in the pub and one buys, one sells, and we're all doing that. All the artists meet the scientists or whatever it might be there. It's that social life that we love and we need. So cities are far from dead. Cities are on a growth path. So do you think in 2021 we'll start to see that? Because we need people who are living here and people who are working here to get that kind of vibrant feel about it, don't we? Uh, definitely. I, I mean, to be, to be fair, I walk into the city every day and the you know the city's still been full all the way through the crisis. Mm. People are walking around, they're mm. enjoying the green spaces in there, getting out, getting takeaways. You know, and they can't eat inside. The city is a great place. Manchester's a resilient city. Mm. You know, and of course, COVID's been a tragedy, and you feel for everybody who's been affected by it personally. But it will be that these things will pass, mm. and ultimately, in the big path of history, it'll be a footnote. And we'll get back on with our lives. So when you started Urban Splash in 1993, which is almost 30 years ago, we had the IRA bomb in 1996. And in the aftermath of that, Urban Splash and lots of other developers and public and private partners came together and started the regeneration of what was then, it felt very much like it was an unloved city centre. Was that a massively pivotal point for you? And how did you respond to it? I mean, many People point to the regeneration of Manchester starting around the IRA bomb. I sort of disagree because the day after the bomb, there was a task force already set up and waiting mm. and working out what to do. And in many other cities that I know, people have been standing over the hole for a year arguing on who should lead the task force, whatever it might be. So for me, actually, it doesn't go back there. Some other people say Commonwealth Games. For me, it goes back actually to the first Olympic bids in the 80s. Before those bids, Manchester didn't really have a sense of identity and it was, I suppose, trying to compete with other regional cities yeah, and worrying about who was the second city in England or something like that. And what the Olympic Games bid taught us is, you know, Graham Stringer bought a suit for the first time and came there, <laughs> went with Bob Scott yeah. and started competing, not with Bradford or Birmingham, but with Barcelona and Sydney and Los Angeles and the great second cities in the world. And there was a new sense of pride here and a sense of working between the public sector and the private sector. And even when we lost it, there were thousands of people around the corner here in mm -hmm. Castlefield celebrating mm -hmm. the fact that we put our head up at the power pit yeah, and were no longer trying to get points of being the most depressed city. You know, some other cities have done, but actually saying we are going to be a great second city. And out of that process came a whole series of partnerships and more importantly, a vision that we're going to be, a, you know, a Mancunian city, but a great city. Mm, I remember that. I was working for a PR company. I think it's my second job. We had to produce a newsletter of the win, a win letter and a, and a lose. So we had to obviously like get a shot of one. But that night it was like the most victorious defeat going, wasn't it? Because everybody was singing as though we had one. It was a, yep. a night to be remembered, definitely. And I thought that when I set my business up, well, a month after that, actually, I've spent my whole career driving into the city centre or now coming on the tram and always being aware of counting the cranes. And you, you kind of always feel that when there, are no, there was one period, I certainly remember 2008, nine when the cranes disappeared. But 
the cranes seem to be a barometer, don't they, of us setting the pace and, and of our business wealth and health, really. Yeah. Interestingly, even in 2008, there were some cranes and there's some cranes on the co-op and some cranes on the university mm. buildings going up there, but no private sector development. So, I mean, yes, you know, the cranes are a very good measure of how many tall buildings are being put up in Manchester. Uh, and, I mean, I think it was important that you say the wealth and health as well as the wealth. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, Manchester has seen regeneration, but it's been more than just about glitzy towers going back over the years and has been an arts and cultural renaissance coming in there. It's been a social renaissance. And I think increasingly there is one thinking about the well-being of its citizens. And how do you see that from those so early 90s to now in terms of health and wealth and, and social cultural offer that we have, what's been the biggest impact? Because we had very little. I had a few great clubs and that was about it, I think, in, in 1990. Yeah, I mean... The art and the culture, people often say, are um, a test of a city. And you know, Manchester always had a great reputation for um, sports, particularly football. I used to say with two great football teams, Man United and Man United Reserves. I can't <laughs> use that one anymore. Um, and regeneration. Yeah. But it never really had much of a reputation with culture. And then I think what we've seen when with Maria Bolshaw coming here, with the Whitworth, with Manchester Art Gallery, with the Bridgewater Hall, with the Royal Exchange... And, you know, something very close to my heart, Manchester National Festival. Mm. We started that from scratch and, you know, we developed that, first of all, into one of the greatest arts festivals in the world. There's now bringing visitors from all over the world and really putting Manchester on the map, the world map for creative creative work, artwork. And, you know, soon to open the factory building next door to where we are now, which is going to be the most amazing arts venue in the world, actually. It's going to be really a real, real asset for the city. And I think we are very lucky with our council, who's been continual investors into culture. You know, despite all the problems they've had to deal with on the economy, they've seen culture as an economic driver. And they've actually continually and successfully invested in the arts, in the culture, in the well-being of the city. It's interesting. So you talk about Factory, which is right next to us here. Sam, who's the creative director in our, in our team, his father-in-law's business that he owns is actually supplying all the steel factory so ah, yeah very good <laughs> so keeping tabs yep. on that but yeah. I mean talk to me about I mean MIF has been it has been fantastic for the city hasn't it it's a city of first and how do you see that that the addition of factory supporting yep. that going forward so MIF's been uh, you know been amazing I think and we started in oh I can't remember now 2017 I think we started in 2015 first festival was two, sorry 2007 and it was all about commissioning festival. So for two weeks, every two years in the summer, we bring some of the best artists in the world and um, they come in, often working with different artists and doing brand new work. So everything's new commissions. So we've seen some, you know, amazing works. Elbow with the Halle, Bjork, Damon Albans, Opera, mm. New Orders playing here. All sorts of weird and wonderful. Kenneth Branagh doing Shakespeare in a church in Ancoats. So, and we've also explored a whole host of new buildings. So we've, you know, St Peter's in Ancoats. Um, we brought back the Albert Hall was originally at MIF Commission. Mayfield was originally at MIF Commission. So, you know, a huge, huge, great legacy. And... I suppose the idea between the factories, what if we had a building where we could host these amazing events, not for two weeks, every two years, but every day, 365 days a year, wouldn't that be amazing? Mm -hmm. So we then went about a competition. We worked with OMA, 
we picked them from the competition. OMA, um, Office of Metropolitan Architecture, based in the Netherlands, but they're like the architect's architect. Uh, a guy called William Coolhouse set it up. It's an amazing building, but effectively, it's sort of two buildings in one. One is a theatre, 1600 capacity theatre, side on to this huge, huge warehouse. Uh, it's like 30 metres tall. So you just go into this huge warehouse and or capacity about 6,000. So you can have, um, you know, you'll see the huge operas there. You can have pop gigs there. You can have visual arts events. So all sorts of weird and wonderful and wacky and local and family and huge and small <laughs> events uh, happening. So very much looking forward to getting that open. And when's opening? Opening is going to be... I'm not sure we've given any exact date yet there, yes. <laughs> so it's something to look forward to. I heard that you can... Can you get a, a, some massive plane in there or something to... It's big enough fans? It's big enough to host a, um, a jumbo jet. A jumbo, exactly. a massive plane, jumbo jet. Yeah. I knew it was something, yeah, huge. Um, that we can't wait. Obviously, we're a neighbour, so we're looking forward to that. You celebrated Urban Splash's 25th anniversary with a book and an exhibition with a strap line, It Will Never Work. And I came to your event in Manchester, which was an honour. I still got a couple of the posters that I think I gave or was given or nicked, I'm not sure. But that statement really resonated with me as a Mancunian because it feels like in Manchester we'll commit to something, give it a go anyway and figure out whether it works or not afterwards. So what's behind that statement for you? So uh, we're 25 years old. We thought we'd do a book to celebrate what we'd achieved. And then we were wondering what to call it. And we're quite unusual as a property developer because we do all sorts of different things. Big projects like Fort Dunlop or Park Hill, tiny projects like terraced houses in Chimney Pop Park, commercial properties like um, Juicy House, residential ones like Britannia Mills, refurbishments, um, modular housing, new build, a whole host of different things. And we thought, what ties all these projects together? And sort of the best answer came is in nearly all of them, when we started them, people told us it would never work. We couldn't get planning, we wouldn't get funding, no one's living in the city centre, whatever the reason is. So we thought it was quite a good name, it would never work. And it's sort of one of my things in life that if you believe in anything enough, if you really, really, really want to do something, you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. You just need that commitment and perseverance to, you know, get the think about it deeply, get the self-belief and then make it happen. And do you feel that that's the culture in your organisation? People that work with you feel the same way? Yes. You know, we are very big on culture. Always want to hire for attitude and intelligence rather than skills. And we work very hard on trying to develop a culture in people, you know, a can-do, mm. an optimistic. When people say you can't do something, I always challenge them. There are very, very, very few things in the world you can't do. It might be too difficult. It might be too expensive. It might take too long. It might even have never been done before. But there are usually not many things that actually can't be done. Mm. And so I always, you know, want to just challenge, challenge, challenge and find out what it is that we really want to do. And one of the things that I've noticed, I think it's fair to say, in your personality over the years is that innate sense of curiosity. So do you think that's what drives that for you? Um, yeah, I mean, I think being curious is good. I've never sort of thought about that before I recognised it, but I think being curious is very good. 
And, you know, we do when we started doing city centre living in Manchester, we looked up, we saw the empty buildings. Why was nobody living there? Nobody gave me a good answer. Do you know, some people said, oh, this will never work as residential. I said, why not? And they said, the ceilings are too high. <laughs> and he said, you what? <laughs> and actually, when they started doing it, people were putting suspended ceilings yeah. in these amazing warehouses. <laughs> and so, you know, you just think that... Um, and I think it's about curiosity and also going back to first principles, yeah, and not just copying what other people are doing, but innovating and doing things differently. So you're an adopted Mancunian and came to Manchester, he said, to study politics in 1983. I think a lot of people would assume that you are a bona fide Manc, but you've you certainly bred here. How much of a Mancunian do you feel now? I would certainly consider myself as a bona fide man. <laughs> Some people are Mancunian by pure accident of birth. I chose to become one. That's my stock line. And I think the great thing about Manchester is a really welcoming city. It's a city of immigrants. You know, immigrants from the UK, immigrants from abroad. It's been built as a city of trade. And it's always been really welcoming to different people from different places. Look at the names of our streets, you know, Poland Street. Look at the name of the buildings, Asia House, India House. Look in the town hall and on the ceiling, what have we got? A celebration of the flags of all the world, mm -hmm. the trading nations. You know, Manchester started nothing. It got built by people coming in. Yeah, you know, if you look at um, Richard Lease is not born in Manchester. Many of the key players in the city actually weren't born here, mm -hmm. but arrived here. And I think in Manchester, nobody cares where you're from. It's where you're going that counts. And mm -hmm. I think that's a really good attribute. That's so true. I mean, Joanne Roney was on the podcast recently and she said that she just always had an affinity with Manchester, even though she hadn't lived here. And she wanted the job more than she'd ever wanted a job because she felt this was going to be this was the home that she kind of wanted for a, for a long time in her life. I think that's it's so true. I mean, what would you describe the attributes of a Mancunian born, bred or adopted? Yeah, oh, that's a good question, isn't it? <laughs> you always end up being a bit um, strange. But I think open, welcoming, um, radical, intuitive, perhaps a slight swagger and uh, not arrogance, but um, a slight swagger, uh, cool. Polite, friend, friendly. Mm. Um, and I think it's those sort of combination of different things, you know. And we are a city of firsts, mm. you know. And for me, it's not just pure chance that so many innovations, and particularly social innovations, you know, chartism, suffragette movements have come from trade unions, cooperative has come from Manchester, you know, splitting the atom, the computer, Nobel Prizes, graphene, so many great innovations in so many great different ways have come out of Manchester. And when you chose to come here to university, were you aware of any of that or was it just a, a fluke? Or? Probably not. I grew up in sort of London. I grew up around the world. My dad was in the army, so I lived in a lot of different countries and cities. But I think I've been to 11 schools by the time I was 13. But I wanted to get out of London. I wanted to try another northern gritty city, so I applied to a few northern cities. But I liked Manchester. Manchester was always my first choice. Um, but I didn't really know it. And I turned up here. Hacienda had opened a year beforehand just for me, I, I think. <laughs> And did you think? Do you think you could have done what you've done, and in any other city? It's it'd have been different in any other city, and I think you know you can probably people most people who are to can survive in any city and come and do it. And there are lots of other great cities. I think Manchester's been a great city. It's been very welcoming to me. I feel really part of the city. You know, I'm very involved in the city, and um, you know, involved in most things that go there. The, the other great thing about Manchester is big enough to be able to be doing things of real scale and impact, but it's small enough in that you can know most people mm. in the city. And whereas 
in London, London's not a community. You know, there may be a community in the city where people know each other, maybe a community in the media in the West End, there may be a community in the West End, but they never mix. Whereas the great thing here in Manchester is, you know, the politicians can mix with the business people, can mix with the charity workers, can mix with the sports people, can mix with the academics, can mix with the artists, you know, and there's something very, very nice and interesting about that. And it's small enough for people to rub shoulders mm. and be inspired by other people from other backgrounds, which is always exciting. It goes back to the point of that you learn of selling fire extinguishers, though, are certainly in Manchester because it is so small that people remember you for for how you behave in those relationships. So I think if you look after a relationship here, it'll last you for a lifetime, but also it's small enough that people, you can't hide, can you? You can't hide, definitely. <laughs> I've heard you talk about the fact that it's the mistakes that make you, and if you're not making mistakes, you're not making decisions. So can you give me an example of an important lesson that you've learned on the back of a big mistake? Oh, so many mistakes we're making. <laughs> I can talk for hours literally on the mistakes that we have made. I mean, I think... A couple of things to say, though. The mistakes is learning, yeah? And actually, I tell all our colleagues who come to work for us to make mistakes. And they think that I'm bonkers. Why make mistakes? Because it's actually very, very easy. You can go through your whole life and never make a single mistake. And all you can do is never make a decision. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I come across people who are super bright, much brighter than me. You know, they might be civil servant or something, but they're so afraid to make a mistake, they dither and they take some more advice and they want another report. They won't actually um, make a decision. Now, we're quite good at, I think, making decisions. We make lots of them, make them very quickly. They're not all right. We get some wrong. And when we get them wrong, we try to make the mistake quickly. We try to recognize it quickly and we try to put it right. But when you're going to try new things, and we are innovators, and we try lots of new stuff, inevitably you don't get everything right all the time. So you go back and you improve, improve, improve. And again, it's with the modular housing. With every one of our schemes we've done before, you know, the Park Hills and the Smithfields and the Botany Mills, you make different mistakes, but it's hard to learn from those. Mm. Whereas if you look at cars, you know, I think we're now on Mark 8 Golf, and every time you buy a new golf car... It's better, it's bigger, it's more reliable, it's cheaper because they're learning and learning and learning. And so we're doing that with our um, townhouse. So the first townhouses in Newsington were Mark 1, we're now to Mark 3. And each one's getting gradually slightly better, 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 learning from our mistakes. I think it's really important, isn't it, to give your team and yourself that space to be able to to get things wrong and, and that space to be able to kind of rethink and evaluate and then give it to go again. Totally. You know, don't make the same mistake twice. Yes. Yeah? <laughs> um, if you get it, if you make a mistake, yeah, don't look to ascertain blame whose fault it is. Don't go on a witch hunt. Just say, right, we made a mistake and we get it wrong. And the first thing to do is somebody says to something's gone wrong, you say, I'm sorry, what can we do to put it right? Yeah. And invariably you can do that. And invariably, you know, everything works out better from the experience of um, making a mistake and putting it right. Totally agree. What's one of our values is admit it, fix it, move on. And often, and it happens when we advise clients when they've had an issue, you can end up with a much better outcome by having made the mistake in the first place as long as you say sorry and that you don't try and hide it and you don't blame anybody. But collectively, you can find a much better solution that's better for everybody. Definitely. Admit it, fix it, move on. That's my lesson for today. (laughs) Do you like that one? Great. I mean, talking about running a business, what kind of leader are you? Um, oh, you're probably better off asking my colleagues that. <laughs> um, I, well, the art of leadership for me is not about telling people what to do, but it's allowing people to achieve things they never believe they were capable of achieving. 
and that's what you know I try to do is with everybody or my colleagues give them the confidence um, give them the ambition and allow them encourage them to grow and mm. try to achieve things they thought they could never achieve mm. uh, it's good for them it's good for me it's good for the business and you mean personally so they can fulfill personal objectives or goals with us you're working with urban splash yeah personally and for the business you know it's yeah. win-win situation yeah. so yeah it's about being being ambitious about thinking you know what's your big audacious goal mm. yeah um you know related point i always thought chairman and chief executives yeah always very important um always very important relationship someone said there's only sort of two bits of advice um, a chairman ever gives to a chief executive For one sort of chief executive who's the one who's a very safe pair of hands he says well great you've been doing this job for years and years you can do this standing on your feet yeah but what i'm going to tell you is what can you do next year to change the world what's your big audacious mm -hmm. goal come up with something really enormous to change the world the other sort of chief executive is one who's got um, hundreds of great ideas, yeah, and dozens of them. And again, there the chairman's got to say, "Well, listen, they're all great ideas. Any one of those could change the world. But if you try and do ten, you're yeah. not going to do them all. So pick one or the most two, and let's execute that one." And so I think is that challenge of not doing too many things, but doing a few things and doing them really, really well. And I think and hope I'm a natural delegator, which probably is another word of saying lazy <laughs> or not good at finishing things. But it's all about it's also all about teamwork. Yeah. yeah. And very much encourage loyalty. I refuse to ever hear that's not my job or it's not my fault or um, I won't do that. We're one team. Yeah. We look after each other's backs. If something goes wrong, we all turn around and help each other to put it right. Mm. And, you know, and as you grow, those things become harder and harder to keep ingrained in the DNA of the business, but we work hard at it. Liam Manson, do you know Liam from Didsbury Gin? He Gyms um, aren't places I've <laughs> went too often, sadly. Gin. Oh, gin. Oh, no, that, that I frequent. Like, come on, I definitely should. <laughs> I definitely should know him then, gin. I'll make sure gin I'm very familiar you. with. You need to know him. Yeah. <laughs> he said about knowing when to stay in your lane, which I think is a great way of describing, you know, that you, you pick people to work with who are better than you at certain things and let them get on with it. Um. Well, absolutely. There and uh, again, a failing of a number of leaders has been afraid to recruit people better than them. Mm. I'm the least qualified person in the business. Everybody in the business, or certainly all my you know co-directors, can do stuff better than I can do mm. it. Yeah, unashamedly, no question at all about that. It's not even judgment; it's fact. Mm. And actually, you know, all I've ever done—the only way I've got any success in my life—is surrounding myself with people better, more able than me. Mm. Absolutely, and as you say, give them that space and. Putting your ego aside, I think some people struggle with not being the person that can do everything. I mean, when I started the business, I could do everything because, and I didn't, it was before even the internet, but now not a chance. I can yeah. do a small, you know, percentage of what yeah. we actually need to do. And just going back then, I'm interested in goals because we just set that in our team for 2021, that we're all going to support each other in a personal goal that is a big audacious goal. And I've decided that I'm going to write the book that I started in 2001 so we're all supporting each other and we're going to give each other time within the working year to dedicate to that goal. So I'm looking forward to the session that we've got on that. So have you set yourself a big audacious goal? I set myself a big you, audacious goal. You walk goal. right into that. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, we've got, you know, uh, we've got a few big audacious goals. In the um, House by Urban Splash modular housing business, that's going to be one of the biggest house builders in the UK. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's going well with our residential fund that we've launched. So it's a way for 
professional investors to invest in residential property. We want to grow that to a billion pound fund. So, um, you know, those two business-wise are big, audacious. <laughs> uh, I like goals myself. I mean, I during the last recession, I was genuinely worried that we may not survive the financial crisis. And we had, you know, a big negative balance sheet, nearly £100 million, which we've sorted out, more than mm-hmm. sorted out. But it was tough going. And so one of the ways I deal with crisis, thinking, well, what, what will I do if the worst happens? And so you get your mind around, what's well, worst things can happen? I said, well, I lose the whole business. What will I do? And I said, well, I'm still, to be honest, one of the luckiest people in the world if that happens because I've got no personal debt and I own my own houses. And I'm an entrepreneur, so I'll start up and start again. Then I think, well, but what I don't want to do is hang around Manchester for a month and see the headlines in the <laughs> news. Everybody mm-hmm. telling me he was too fucking smart, wasn't mm-hmm. he? Anyway, there, uh, I'm too cocky. Uh, deserves what he got. And so I thought I'd go for a walk. And I thought I'd go for a walk from a place in Flen, which is near Chamonix, to my place in the south of France. So that's a 600-kilometre mount, mountain walk, uh, carrying everything on your back. Now, luckily, we didn't go bankrupt, and we survived everything consensually, and we um, you know, looked after our banks, and they looked after us. Uh, but I thought, that's too good an idea not to miss out on. And so I did the walk with some friends in stages, admittedly, mm-hmm. three or four stage stages, but I walked from the Alps uh, near Chamonix to the sea. Which is incredible. And what did you learn on the way? Well, that that thinking time, or you've obviously gone outside your comfort zone in doing parts of that. Yeah, no, it's great. I mean, one is you can again do whatever you want to do. It sounds yeah. crazy, and yeah, there were a couple of hairy moments on it. I went with my ski guide to look after us. I went with a good friend and neighbour um, who liked the idea. Who's again a super busy guy, but he runs a big private equity business. And actually, it was during that walk that um, decided to set up the residential fund because. He said, listen, Tom, what you're doing is really interesting. And this rental income you've got from flats, you know, like you were saying before, basically no one ever stops paying the rent because it's the last thing, you know, even in times of recession, it's the most steady income you've got. And he said, actually, investors would be really interested in looking at that. Why don't you do it and allow institutional investors to invest in it? Mm -hmm. And so we thought about that. And, you know, everybody's doing the big PRS blocks. But, you know, and, you know, lots of people approached us and said, well, we'll fund you 100%. But, you know, they fund you 100%. They do it their way. Yeah, and ultimately, it's their money, so they've got the last one, and they all want to do the same thing. And they're all building, from my mind, building buildings to make them super efficient, using accountants and spreadsheets to design buildings, which ends up having very long central corridors and, by and large, very small flats. Yeah. Um, and actually, we just thought the people, where they rent or they buy, just want great homes. Yeah. So we thought we'd use our great homes we're already providing and actually provide some of those for rent as well as for sale. And then provide that for you know high net worth professional investors and institutional investors and grow that and that came directly out of the walk. It's having that time and that space, isn't it, just to switch off, getting off the hamster wheel. And I yep. think that I mean I walked a lot in lockdown. I mean, we were working the whole way through, but I did make time to walk for two hours every day because the days were long. And yeah, I mean, I found inspiration for me personally and also for the business because just realise that I don't often get time to get off the hamster wheel. Yeah. I mean, another great piece of advice I was given that I don't always get is to start every day with a blank piece of paper. You know, as a leader, if you can, I delegate everything. So everything on a day-to-day basis, somebody else looks after and you've got a blank piece of paper to think about new ideas, new strategy, new connections, then actually there's no bad way to be. And, you know, and that's uh, um, so that's what I aimed to do it don't always quite get there <laughs> so it's really good goal that actually because sometimes if you've been brought a doer and to prove how hard you work to everybody around you you start every day with a piece of paper that the list runs onto the next page <laughs> 
So, I mean, you said, I think going back to that, you know, business failure or success that could have probably could have sold Urban Splash at times over and over again for a hell of a lot of money and hung your boots up. So why haven't you done that? And what is it that keeps you kind of focused on purpose? Well, I'm very lucky and I love my business and I work with a load of great people and I enjoy coming to work, you know, every day. And, um, you know, clearly I'm looking out to be in a position where I don't need to go to work. I could easily not work again, but I love coming into work. And I tell everybody, all colleagues, when they come to work, again, if they don't enjoy coming to work on Monday, don't bother coming in. Mm-hmm. And I say, I mean that really seriously, because if you're not happy coming to work, you spend most of your life in work. If you're not happy, don't do it. And actually, it's not because there's anything wrong with you or anything wrong with the firm. It's because it's not a good fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, you'll find somewhere else, find something else in the world that you do enjoy working at and coming to it. It's really important. I think we are very, very lucky in the business that we work in, in the, the number, a couple of different things. We're working with a lot of interesting people. We're working with something very, very tangible. So actually building something is like having a giant Lego set. And so we start with a really crappy bit of land and we end up with beautiful buildings where people can work and live in. And if we get it right, our buildings will work, will last hundreds of years. And whenever I do a talk, I always finish with Oath from Sidney Athens, which was, we shall leave the city not less, but better, greater, more beautiful ones left to us. And I think, you know, and I hope Urban Splash has been able to do that in, um, you know, a number of towns and cities we've been lucky enough to work in. And that is a real motivator to carry on doing that. You know, work with great people, have some great ideas, build some great buildings, you know, and hopefully make a few good along the way as well. Mm. I can relate to that and I can see, uh, certainly you talk about something tangible. And my dad used to say he was an engineer and he used to make stuff and actually... His factory was off Trinity Way, where you then... It's on exactly the same site. Is that right? Yeah. Um, we'll put a plaque up there, Well, Lisa. I know. Lisa's it's called Chromec. We've still got the, we've got the reception plaque still that said reception good. where I did some work experience. We we used to shout at each other a lot. But because he was making tangible stuff, like he made digger arms and booms for like JCB and people like that, he could not get his head around what I did. So he called PR organised lying. But the irony of that is the fact that there's still so much tangibility. So as a business also, because of all the regeneration work we've been involved with, you know, I also drive around the city and I think, although I didn't put the brick in the place, it's kind of still part of our legacy. And that that's what yeah. gets you out of bed. Well, an interesting story, just that one, isn't it? Your father and what Manchester was once making digger arms. Yeah, yeah the same site now, modular housing. Yeah. People living in there, working as accountants, solicitors and PR yeah. people, but generating wealth all the same and making our city a better place. Absolutely. And when he was there, they turned us back on the river. Yeah. I know we could walk past there. Now we're opening up that river walkway and the city's becoming more beautiful. So it's the evolution of a city. I'll have to bring him down for a visit. He might he might struggle slightly, but um, I think he will see sense when he when he when he comes down. But yeah, Platt would be great. I might keep you to that, Tom. I know you're completely committed to partnerships, and we've talked already about that collaboration between private and public sector and putting egos aside. Which would you say have been important to you in your career, either personally or professionally? Local authorities are super important to us. You know, when we go into a city, we always try to meet the leaders, the, the chief executive and all the leader. And we're a private company, so we're lucky we only work with people we like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if they've got a vision for, you know, sort of two sorts. Yeah. By and large, everyone says, cool, that looks amazing, Tom. Yeah, we'd love to have that. Come in, come and do it. And then one sort says, yes, that's great. And by the way, we've got a bit of a problem with this, this and this. And this is how we're going to overcome it. 
The other set is, that looks lovely, but you've got a problem here, there, and there. You go and sort those problems mm. out. Yeah. <laughs> and so it you know, becomes your problem rather than yeah. our problem. And it's the cities and the councils where it's our problem and not your problem that we like working with that we can help. So they've been important to us. You know, central government as well. Um, we work closely with Homes England and the HCA. And we've had a lot of partnerships. You know, we've had a very good partnership with PEARS, um, which is a big private family office effectively in London with PFP, uh, registered provider, um, with a you know Westmoreland's combined authority. We've got a, so a whole series of different um, organisations. You've been there, obviously. You've got lots of people you have to support and you're creating something for people of, of different communities and different cities. When you get knackered, I mean, how do you deal with that? Have you got a support network around you? You know, family primarily first, there, yeah. yes, which is always great. And then, you know, great colleagues, most of which have been with me up to 30 years working together, who, you know, we watch each other's backs and we always look after mm-hmm. each other. But I'm pretty resilient. I don't get down that much. I'm usually <laughs> the one keeping everybody up. Talking about that aspect of when your Manchester is resilient, I think if you look back from the kind of trigger points in my career, so the bomb, and we had uh, the 2008 crash, and then we also had the crisis around the arena, and then now the pandemic, what really stands out then is that as a city, that's when we really dig deep and we kind of pull on our old relationships and we use them to give us energy and support. And then really in those moments of crisis, that's when the whole new network of relationships is created that then buoys you for the next decade and even though we've not been been able to come together we've done so much of that on zoom the thing that stuck out for me again is how many new relationships and how much more magic has been created out of that is that something that you've really picked up on through your career and, and even seen in the last year uh definitely and it, it, you know it is crisis and i've always been keen to work philanthropically myself on different charity things i've been a trustee of the tate of the arts council of liverpool's capital of culture bid of mif now and i think through those sorts of relationships and those boards again you meet lots of interesting people you meet lots of relationships and I think, you know, Manchester in particular has been really good at setting up a whole series of private public sector boards on the um, arts institutions, on marketing Manchester, mm. on the science institutions, just to encourage and bring these different people together. Mm. Um, I know when I first took over the Arts Council, all the leaders of the arts organisations had never met each other, never been in the same room together. Dave Miltree never met Howard Bernstein, asked me to introduce him to Howard Bernstein. Really? You know, it was crazy, isn't God, it? There, yeah. yeah. And, you know, he was running um, Home Corner House yeah. then. And so just that simple act of connecting. And, you know, I think, um, you know, a number of us have got reasonable black books. And so just using your little black books. And it's one of the most useful things you can do in the world, I think, connecting two or three different people together for use. Totally. That's what gets me out of bed. And it literally, and well, mostly important when there's no commercial gain attached, it's you need to know you because something great will happen. And the the joy that you get years down the line when you know that friendship or partnership has been created, it's fantastic. So just quickly going back to values, where would you say your innate values have come from? Has that been through your family or have you been inspired by somebody or people in particular? I mean, family, clearly a big um, push always. There's not somebody I could say, that was my mentor, that's who's mm. taught me everything. I think it's just picking up a whole host of different things, different experiences. I mean, I've been lucky to be involved in a, a large number of different businesses and sectors 
And you just, you know, if you treat everybody like you want to be treated and you look after people and you've got a... Um, so Richard Branson once, and he said, any business is about two things. One is about having a big vision. Yeah, you need to have that big vision. You need to know where you want to go. And you need to be able to drive other people with it. But secondly, you need to do relentless attention to detail. Yeah, and actually have that relentless attention to detail to make sure that everything comes right and then look after everybody. Mm. Have you had a chance to look at our Roland Dransville way, the values that drive us? Yeah, they're great. Is anything that stood out for you there? So, I mean, <laughs> um, they, were, they were really good. And, and what I was uh, surprised about is how many of them that uh, we use. Number two is no success uh, to excess, no dickheads. Yeah. And again, we always say that, you know, and whether we're looking for investors into our residential funds or people to work, it's simply no dickheads. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they're just... Mm -hmm. You know, you get a negative person in the place and it drains everybody else. It's so time-consuming. You're better off just dealing without them. Mm. Um, and also reminding yourself not to be one because we all have those moments. Uh, correct. <laughs> correct. Leaders create leaders. You know, we love that. And, you know, lots of examples in Urban Splash where we've created other people have come up mm. through the ranks and become really great. So that's good. I like your this one. Admit it, fix it, move on if you yeah. make a problem. I think that's really good. Loyalty always, I think that's really, really yeah. important. Yeah, and I think you know, you see that most of um, you know, I see different friends of mine, and quite often, friends of mine who get rich always every time I see them, they're the new best friend every year, and as right. they move up, they get rich, but you know, still mm. got the same old mates I've always mm. had. And I think it's really, really important again, you know, most of the people working in Urban Splash have worked there forever, and people are good and people are bad and everyone's got their nibbles but actually when you know people it's it's good and you know mm. what makes them work and what mm. doesn't so loyalty i think is really good mm. plant trees you'll never see i think that's really important as well there can do it so great values talking about plant trees you'll never see and that's the most important one to me it's also it's about legacy um and you've obviously aside from the your day job you've obviously embedded yourself in some of the key pillars of the city some of the institutions that make the city great so obviously the university and manchester united foundation is that something that's important to you to use your platform as a leader to create a legacy yes super important um you know and again with the university for instance i was lucky enough to be elected to chancellor of the university just after I merged with umist and what I was amazed is the relationship between the city and the university was pretty poor. It's all met mm. once a year. You know, now Nancy and um, and the leaders of the city are meeting twice a month. There, yeah. yeah. And so, you know, just Don't the whole again. thing has changed. <laughs> so it's just, uh, I'm not saying that's just down to me, but it's just, you know, it, it's helping those different things. And, and uh, you know, I brought a load of, for, you know, university do an amazing job with bursaries and helping kids who may not expect to go to university get to Manchester University mm. and supporting them. And again, I've um, you know introduced a number of uh, wealthy friends who are in a position to help support those sorts of programmes. So that's been really good. Manchester United Foundation, amazing work they're doing. Yeah, mm. particularly in the crisis, you know, feeding the feeding kids who can't get yeah. food, going out into the um, and literally doing it quite scientifically, finding the most difficult, um, toughest neighbourhoods, the most deprived neighbourhoods, and there you got kids who really reject all authority 
and I've had very t tough upbringings. And the amazing thing is, if somebody's got a Manchester United crest on them, they will listen to them. Yeah. yeah. Whereas they won't listen yeah. sometimes to the school teachers mm -hmm. or other people. And so they're saying, yeah, come to free football training, come and do this, but learn about good nutrition as well. Yeah. And by the way, you've got to go to your lessons if it's a school if you want to come home. You've got to do this and that. And mm -hmm. actually, amazing changes um to people's lives going through there and so you know my uh, i'm so impressed with the people who are working so hard in those areas with some quite tricky individuals to uh, turn their lives around yeah we've seen so much of that haven't we certainly with football clubs and lots of other organizations themselves in a lot of cases who've been going through incredibly challenging times have been there haven't they to support people who have been vulnerable or needed it so it's been i've been felt felt very proud to be Mancunian in that period of time obviously you've already left a legacy um, and the legacy that you've left will leave an impact on generations to come and for our kids and our kids kids is there anything left for you that's unfulfilled oh loads well, you just started <laughs> only halfway through my life um well getting the getting the factory open it's a big thing i want yeah. to do yes yeah, so that's the big thing in fact the next thing i want to do is help in Manchester, what's the biggest issue in Manchester City Centre? Everyone says is there's no green space. Yeah, um, it's not quite true. There's quite a bit of green space in Manchester City Centre, quite a few pocket parks and some big parks on the outside. But what we have got some great blue space. Yeah, we've got mm. a great river running all the way around it. It's actually loops all the way around it, but you can't get to it half the time. So what I want to try to help happen is get some really good walkways around the River Irwell and the canals. So you've got a whole series of routes. You know, think about the South Bank in London. Before the Tate opened, that was just, uh, you couldn't get to the walkway. Now the South yeah. Bank looks amazing in yeah. London. Once the factory gets open here, I want to do the same thing with the South Bank in Manchester or the River Walkway, I'm calling the Blue Line. So I've got a little bit of a project in the back somewhere that I want to, once I've got the factory open, I'm going to start working on that one. That'll be fantastic. It's true, actually. We were appointed recently, very excited, actually, about on Salford Crescent Master Plan. So we we pitched for that in, in lockdown. And... It took me back to obviously the old roads and places where I yep. used to go. My dad's factory was, but you know the, that's just such a beautiful area, isn't it? Totally. I mean, it's really, part of it. Peel yeah. Park's just so beautiful. You yep. don't you don't see it. No, no, correct. I'm slightly bitter because we also bit for that and lost <laughs> to your colleagues there. Right. Uh, sorry, but, uh, sorry. No, no, no. It's good. No, we'll help you get that. We have a walkway open, and that is amazing. You know, people haven't been up to the meadows. Yeah, mm. they're absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's amazing. It's just really incredible. Good. You do get chased by the geese. They're pretty vicious, but apart from that, it's wonderful. Tom, quick fire round. Yep. United or City? And United. <laughs> and what's your favourite development or building in Manchester? And you can have one of your own and one that's not yours. Um, well, for mine, I'll do Newsington as a development, mm. just because of the scale of it and the way we've done the change. The one that's not mine, I think, actually, I'm going to go for the CIS building. Uh, because when that was built, the original tower, that was like a homage to Mies van der Rohe, one of the greatest architects. And it was a sign of the confidence in the 1960s we really lost. There was the tallest building, I think, at the time. And it's a really beautiful building. Mm. It's sadly been a bit dilapidated and unloved, but it's potentially a great building and I believe they're going to refurbish it now. That'd be good to know. I went to an Indian wedding there and it was absolutely incredible. Yep. And that was the, first, the only time I'd ever been in the building. What's your favourite Manchester band or artist? Uh, 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 so many and I'm totally you know, I've not bought a record in about 30 years but I will go for the Stone Roses and what would you order at the chippy? chips with lots of salt and what's one of the best things that you think has come out of Manchester? 
it's people. Mm. And it's people have come out and gone all around the world doing amazing things. I mean, yeah. they're under one of the it, but the Mancunians. Yeah, fantastic. And then just lastly, we're at the beginning of 2021. What message would you have for the people of Manchester to give them hope and confidence that we will get back to that vibrant, connected city that we choose to call home? So these days will pass. We will get over COVID. It will be a footnote in history. I mean, people's lives have been affected by it and our feelings go out for anybody who's been directly affected. But these things will pass and the overriding story is one of growth and excitement and that story and that journey will continue if we've got anything to do with it. Fantastic. Well, it feels like we're in very good hands, Tom. And I feel like my career and your career kind of run side by side. And for me, what stood out is that even though you've been an award-winning regeneration business, it's the level of creativity that you've had. And I think you've helped lots of businesses like mine to be brave and, and feel courageous. So, you know, thank you so much for that and look forward to seeing uh, what's going to come in 2021. Thank Fantastic. you. Thanks, Lisa. Great interview. Thank, thank you. you. Tom helped to build this city by ignoring those who said it wouldn't work, by trying to start each day with a blank piece of paper, by helping the scientists meet the artists and by always being the first and the last at the jumble sale. We Built This City is out every Thursday when you'll hear from another incredible Greater Mancunian. If you want to find more out about Roland Dransel PR and you'd like some help in creating your legacy, please head to rdpr.co.uk for more information or give us a call on the same number we've had for 24 years, 0161 236 1122. Thank you and see you next time.